Well, last week we started our series, The Stories uh, That Jesus Told. Jerry probably said this last week, but I want to remind you that one-third of what Jesus is recorded as saying in the Gospels, he said in parables. Isn't that a pretty incredible thing? You know, from time to time, pastors are criticized for telling stories. And it's probably not a good thing. You know, stories connect us. Stories draw us in. And Jesus certainly had a way of telling stories. He was a master teacher slash storyteller. I want to remind you also that at a basic level, a parable is a short story designed to convey a concept to be understood or a principle to be put into practice. And really, that's uh, more about uh, the intent of a parable than what it actually is. The word parable in the Greek literally means to set beside. Or in, the, in English, we would say a comparison or a, or a similitude. In the Jewish culture, things were explained not in terms of statistics or definitions as they are in the English language, but most often they were explained in word pictures. And word pictures have a tendency to draw attention not to technicalities like the Jewish law, but to attitudes and concepts and characteristics and Jesus was speaking a language that at the time his hearers definitely understood. And the emphasis was upon attitudes rather than on the outward appearances which the Pharisees were so in love with and focused on. Parables also, and this is important for you to know, parables also have an emotional impact. When when you hear the story, there should be some level of emotion but it requires that we have a soft heart. I say that right here at the beginning of this series because quite often, if you're like me, because I have been often where you are, and you're listening to somebody open up the Word of God from a stage, it's easy for our hearts not to be softened. In fact, very often it's easy for us to be defensive. And if your heart is soft, then there can be an emotional impact. At the same time, The parables of Jesus oftentimes remained a mystery to those with hardened hearts because the parables require that we be self-critical and we put ourselves at the appropriate place in the story, in the parable that's being told. And so the results for the Pharisees were that, as it says in Scripture, they would be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. And by using parables... The timeless truths of Jesus are able to transcend time and culture and technology, all of those things. It's an amazing thing that today, these parables, these stories that Jesus told are really just as relevant today as they were when he told them 2,000 years ago. And this morning, I want us to look at the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Have you ever lost something that was really valuable or something maybe that you really didn't, it wasn't really that valuable, it really wasn't worth a lot of money, but it was really important to you? I, this week, got in, well, I'm not going to tell you who, who but I, I, I was in somebody's vehicle and they were showing me this little baby stuffed thing baby stuffed thing. That's what we call it, right? The baby stuffed thing. You can tell I'm a, I'm, I've got little kids now. And, and I looked at it and I said, Jordan had one of those. And Jordan had this little thing and he called it baby. So next time you see him, ask him about baby. And, 
and we lost it one time. We were thankful that we had two babies. Smart parents get more than one baby, right? Right? You don't want just one blankie. I'm telling you, young parents, you want several of those things, all right? Let them get used to it, have their smell on it and everything. You lose one, you put it right, they never know the difference, all right? And I remember one time we lost baby. Remember that, Diana? We lost baby in the mall. And it's like, dude, we're not going to be sleeping for the next years, you know, until he's 18 and he doesn't want baby anymore. And it was important to us. Baby was, well, not important to us. We didn't really care about baby, but Jordan cared about baby. I heard a story this week about a guy that lost something. Maybe some of you heard this story. I read about a man this week who missed out on a million dollar lottery prize because he lost his ticket. Did anybody hear about that? He bought the ticket about six months ago. Evidently, he bought the lottery ticket. He stuck it in his pocket, put it somewhere in the car, did something with it, didn't realize that he won. Obviously, never even checked the numbers. And the California State Lottery wanted to find out who this man was. And so they knew the grocery store that the lottery ticket was sold in. And so they actually went back to surveillance cameras. They narrowed it down to the very second at which the lottery ticket was purchased. And this guy's face was right there. And so they thought, hey, if we put it out into the media, this guy will come forward, realize that he's won a million dollars. And the guy saw his face, realized that, hey, that's me. Yes, I did buy a lottery ticket. Problem was, he lost the ticket. And as a result of losing the ticket, evidently the rules in the California State Lottery say that the only way you can claim the prize is if you actually have the physical ticket. And so as a result of losing that ticket, he lost the chance to have a million dollars. I told the story to Diana last night, and she said, well, probably is the best thing. You know, he probably would have just squandered the money or done something with it. What the heck? I mean, that doesn't, I mean, I would love to have the money to squander. Amen? Wouldn't you? I mean, give it to me. Let's see how I manage it. But I'd at least like to try to see what I might do with a million dollars. But he never got that chance. Can you imagine the sense of loss that he had? The sense of loss for that man. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories of three valuable things that were lost. And he gives the parable that there's something that's lost that's very important to him and should be important to us, and that's people. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 15, and I hope you do have your Bible. It's easy to say, well, you know, Jerry and Brian, they kind of read the verses to me, and so I don't really need to. You need your Bible. You need to open it up. You need to look. Jerry, sometimes he can preach heresy. you got to watch. you got to make sure that you're looking into that Bible. So bring your Bible. I know that some of you... Uh, Now you're using your mobile device, and that's great, your iPad or whatever. That's awesome, too. But have a copy of God's Word with you. Bring a pen, a piece of paper, take some notes. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. In verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. I realized this week in my study that three of the most important parables of Jesus were told by him in response to these words that the Pharisees uttered to him. Two we're going to look at today, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then next week, Jerry's going to take us through the parable of the prodigal son. But before we can have a full understanding of these parables, we have to look at them, I believe, in their context. What you need to understand is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, were reacting to Jesus' practice of socializing with the tax collectors and the sinners. These so-called religious leaders, 
they advocated a doctrine of salvation through segregation. In other words, we have been saved from people like that and from sins like that. We don't want to defile ourselves anymore by hanging out with people like that. And so in order to prove that they were really good, that they were very religious, they would segregate themselves from anybody that they viewed as less than them. So it's quite easy to see why Jesus' practice of socializing with the filthy sinners was a scandal. These people, these these tax collectors and these sinners, they were indeed a motley crew. For centuries before Christ and after Christ, tax collectors were universally hated. And in fact, as I thought about it this week, really things haven't changed a whole lot, right? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) There's a story behind that, amen, I'm sure. You know what it's like, some of us do, when you've not done anything wrong. I don't cheat on my taxes that I know of. I mean, it's easy to be ignorant of the law, right? But when you get that letter in the mail that says internal revenue service, like that's a bad day, right? Bad thoughts come into your head. I mean, tax collectors, the whole tax system is hated and despised. And it has been since the time before Jesus and since Jesus. In Jewish culture, these people... Were, were basically shunned because they were turncoat Jews who had sold themselves to buy Roman tax-gathering franchises so they could prey on their fellow Jews. They were so hated in their culture, get this, that in the Jewish synagogues, they would not even let them tithe. Now think about that for just a moment. You are a hated person when a church won't take your money. You, you just know that you are disliked when the church won't take your money, right? I had somebody when we were in our Irresistible Influence project last year that said to me, hey, I'm going to play the lottery, and if I win, I'm going to you know, give half my winnings to the church. You know, would you take the money? And I'm going, of course, I would take the money in a heartbeat, right? But you know you're bad when the priest comes up to you and says, you're a tax collector, we don't want your money. They wouldn't even take their money. They were so bad that they couldn't even give testimony in a court of law because their testimony meant nothing. They were assumed to be liars and cheaters. These were the worst people, the tax collectors, and then there were also sinners, which oddly enough is pretty interesting that they were called tax collectors and sinners because really according to scripture, that would encompass all of us, would it not? Maybe you're not a tax collector, but I guarantee you, you're like me and you're a sinner. These were immoral people. These were people that were not living according to the establishment of Jewish laws of righteousness. These were people that were in desperate need of redemption. And if the truth were known, that would say that that was true of all of us. That would encompass all of us. And so Jesus here is being true to his mission. And what was his mission? He gave it to us in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those that were almost there, those that were almost good enough, right? No, no, that's not what he said. He came to seek and to save what? Who? The lost. Now, it's, it's good for us right now to kind of define, because some of you, when we use terminology like that, and I think if we're not careful in church, we use terminology and we just assume everybody understands it. To be lost in Scripture means that you, you are still in your sin. You are still bearing the penalty of your sin. You've not crossed the line of faith. You've not come into the relationship that you were created to have with Jesus Christ. And so scripture, Jesus refers to us in that state as lost. 
And Jesus said, that's why I've come. John 3, 17, he said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so Jesus was definitely guilty as charged. He was hanging out with sinners and he was hanging out with them all the time. I thought about this week in my study, just a few of those times. Do you remember when he was talking with the adulterous Samaritan woman at the well? And you remember the people's reaction to his communication with not only this adulterous person, but she was a woman. And in that culture, women were, were minimized. It's interesting that some take the Bible and say that the Bible minimizes women. You have to understand the culture in which the Bible was written, women were marginalized. When Jesus came, Jesus turned the whole culture upside down as it related to those that society considered lesser. And so Jesus is there and he's talking with this adulterous woman and he's the son of God. He knows exactly who she is. He knows exactly what she's done and he starts up a conversation with her. And before too long, she realizes her need of redemption, her need of a savior. All because Jesus hung out with people who were desperate, who needed him. We're also told about a wee little man and the wee little man's name was Zacchaeus. Some of you sang the song too. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up into the sycamore tree. Why? For the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he did what? He looked up into the tree and he said what? Zacchaeus, come on, give it to me. You come down. Why? Because I'm going to your house today. Because I'm going. I got whizzy buttons for that when I was in grade school for that. I knew that song, knew that story. You remember when he met Zacchaeus? You remember that? He meets Zacchaeus and the people are going, of all places to go to lunch and you got to go hang out with a short little tax dude? And he goes to Zacchaeus' house and, he, and Zacchaeus comes to faith in Jesus. Jesus was constantly hanging out with these people. Luke chapter five, this is one of my favorites. He's hanging out with the founder of the Levi's Gene Company, a guy, a tax collector named Levi. You didn't realize that, did you? Come to church, you learn things every single Sunday. He's hanging out with Levi, and I love in Luke 5, 27, it says, when he met Levi, the tax collector, he said to him, follow me. And guess what? Levi goes, okay. Can you imagine what it would be like for you to go to work tomorrow? And, and you know who that person is that I'm talking about. You, you know they're lost, right? I mean, there's no doubt in their mind or your mind or anybody in your office's mind, this person is lost, can you imagine what it would be like to go in there tomorrow and as a contagious Christ follower, a person that wants to be a person of irresistible influence and, and you said to them, hey, come follow Jesus. And they went, okay. Can you imagine what that would be like? Jesus was dealing with that all the time. Verse 28 says that he left everything that he had, which was a lot because he was a tax collector. He was an extortionist of the Jews. He left everything that he had and he followed Jesus. I guess it was worth hanging out with lost people, right? And not only that, but Levi is so excited that he throws a party to tell his friends about Jesus. Now here's the thing that I love about people that, that come to faith in Jesus after knowingly living a very sordid life, right? Knowingly living a life that is kind of anti-God and then they come into a relationship they were created to have. Here's what I love about that. Typically, when we're in that place and we come to understand who Jesus is and we come into a relationship with him, all of our circle of influence 
are people just like us, right? And that was true of Levi. In fact, Levi really had no friends except fellow tax collectors. And I love the text there in Luke chapter 5. It says that there was a large gathering of tax collectors at this, this party that he threw. And why did he throw the party? It wasn't a Super Bowl party, people. He threw the party because he said, I want all you tax collector guys to come and I want to tell you that I met this man named Jesus and he changed my life. Isn't that cool? And the text says that they lounged around and they ate. I love that. In fact, I was thinking this week, I, I should have been born in Bible times. Wouldn't you just love to lay on the floor and eat a cheeseburger? That'd be awesome. You know, it's not too comfortable sometimes when you're sitting in a restaurant and you're all kind of, I just love to lounge. You know, Matt and Jerry and I went out this week to a restaurant. Jerry had two cheeseburgers. It was very embarrassing, very embarrassing. And I thought, well, Jerry would be a lot more comfortable if he was laying on the ground, like in, in Bible times, that would be. And so these guys, you picture all these tax collectors, they're just kind of laying around, you know, and they've eaten and they've drunk a lot. Levi says, hey, I bet you're wondering why I've brought you here. I've brought you here because I met Jesus. Let me introduce you to my friend named Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it? I mean, it's just awesome. He throws this party, but the religious people, the text says, saw Jesus with Levi and they said to him, why do you do this? Why do you hang out with these people? You shouldn't hang out with these people. You're Jesus. They're tax collectors. They're scum. And I love what Jesus says in Luke chapter 5, verse 31. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, in reality, here in this parable, in these two little stories that Jesus is going to tell, the scandal really involves Pharisees and teachers of the law. These men couldn't care any less than they do about sinners, about people that are far from God. And not only did they not care, but they were angry that Jesus actually cared. The scandal was that as the leaders of Israel, these teachers of the law were considered under shepherds of the great shepherd. And yet rather than treating these people and caring about them as God cares about them, they scorned them. They stayed away from them. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, we don't have time to go to that text. Maybe you can do it at a later time. God gives them a stern warning about that. And basically says, because you have abdicated your responsibility to minister to these people as under shepherds of me, the God of the universe, at some point in time, I'm going to have to send somebody who will actually care for these sheep that I so desperately love. And we know, obviously, that that line would come through David and that would ultimately be Jesus. And he's just simply fulfilling that prophecy back in Ezekiel. That he's the one that cares about these people that nobody else cares about. And you can imagine Jesus has been confronted with this question many times. Why do you hang out with these people? Why do you go and lay on the floor and eat food with tax collectors? And why do you, why do, you do all, of, all of these things? And they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand it. And so Jesus does what we're going to see over the next several weeks. He does often. He does what? Let me tell you a story. Right? And he begins to tell a story. Look at verse 3. It says, so he told them this story. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Or, verse 8, 
What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Both stories begin with a loss. A shepherd loses one of his sheep and a woman loses one of her ten coins. The shepherd has a hundred sheep and so losing one of them would not seem so dramatic to his net worth. He was probably moderately well off because he had a hundred sheep. Maybe you're like me and I have a tendency to kind of look at the numbers, right? And you go, if I got a hundred sheep and 99 of them are still here and they're doing what they're supposed to do and I got one really stupid sheep. I say really stupid because they're all sheep. They're stupid, right? But this one's really, really stupid and he goes wandering off. I simply look at the averages and I go, wow, 99 of them are doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? There's only one that's wandering off. So why should I give a rip about that one that's wandering off? Some of you are just like me, if you're honest, right? The difference is I have to stand up here and I have to be honest. You can sit there, keep your mouth shut, and think, oh, I would never do that. That's really sad that he's a pastor and he feels that way. I'm just telling you that for most of us, that's human nature, is it not? To go, well, look, the 99 are doing this. And if I'm the God of the universe, (laughs) I don't think that I put myself in a story where I go wandering off after one person, after one lost sheep. But instead, when the shepherd discovers that he lost the sheep, he doesn't say, oh, well, I think they'll find their way back. You know, eventually they'll get back. And if they don't, I still have 99. I've thought about it this week. Maybe if I would have been the shepherd, I would have gone, well, maybe I'll just leave some sheep snacks along the trail. You know, as I'm taking the sheep over there, I don't know what sheep snack. Anybody know what sheep like? I don't know, whatever it is they eat. Sheep snack, goldfish, all right? Everybody likes goldfish. I just kind of throw some goldfish along the path. And eventually, the sheep will eat the little goldfish along the path, and eventually he'll get back there. But that's really, that's really all that I'm going to do. Like, I'm not going to go leaving during the middle of the night and go running after one stupid lost sheep. Instead, he does something drastic, though. He leaves the other sheep unattended for a time so he can go and search for the one sheep. That's pretty incredible. Make sure that your heart is soft so that you understand what's going on here. The woman who lost one of her coins was apparently, she was very poor. She has 10 coins. Those coins are probably drachma, about a day's wage for a common laborer. It's not a huge loss, but for her, it's very significant. And then they both go on an all-out search for the thing that they had lost that was of such value to them. Obviously, the shepherd loved the sheep and he cared for sheep and that's why he went after it. Obviously, the coin was very important to the woman, and that's why she was so persistent at trying to find it. The lost coin was of such value to her that she's persistent in her search. No doubt in her little, little ancient eastern home that is probably no bigger than the size of what we would consider to be just a storage unit that we might rent. She is down there on that dirt floor and you can just see her in the middle of the night and she's searching frantically. She needs this coin. It has got to be found. I'm sure like me, there are times in your life when you've lost something that's very valuable to you. Have you ever had your child separated from you when you're in a large mall or a crowded event? All right. Most of us as parents, we, we've had that happen. I remember that happening. I don't remember if it was Jordan or Justin when they were really little, and I think we were at BJ's, as I recall. And they got separated, and we didn't know where they were. 
Most of you parents, when I said that, immediately you went to that time when you looked down and your child wasn't there. And in your head for just a moment, you thought, oh, I'm sure they're fine, right? I mean, I'm sure nobody's taken them, but then you think the worst, right? You've read the headlines, you've heard it on the news, and you think, man, that's gonna be my kid, that's, that, that, that kid is gonna be lost. And then do you remember, do you remember when you found them? Now, I know for Diana, she hugs them, there's tears, there's, you know, it's a great rejoicing over the lost child that was lost and now is found. For me and my type A temperament, I sit down immediately and begin to lecture the kid, right? This is why we don't do that. This is how we prevent this from happening again. You see those kids, their parents put them on leashes? We're going to put you on one of those. <clears throat> you ever see those? You're walking around at Disney World and you just expect the kid at any moment to go, <clears throat> right? You, you walk away from us again in BJ's, you're going on a leash, kid. That's what's going to happen to you. You scared us to death. And Diana's over there, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're all right. And he's going, Dad, leave. I love this comfort mom's given me, right? You know, when anything that we've lost is found again, just as in these stories, there is incredible celebration. In each of these stories, when that which was lost, which was valuable, is found, it brings happiness and celebration. Look at verse 5. It says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. It's interesting that as I did a little bit of study uh, this week, it's significant that in the earliest existing statues from the Western church, one of the most infamous statues is that of a shepherd with a sheep over his shoulders. I think that's interesting. That the early church so loved this concept of a loving, uh, unbelievably powerful, sovereign God who loves people enough that he, that he cares about them and he gently takes them and puts them over his shoulders, that they would make a stone statue out of that. The text says that the, the shepherd lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me! I found my, my lost sheep. Can you imagine that? They're going, dude, you got 99 so you got one more stupid sheep. I mean, you got 99. He's going, no, no, we're going to have a party. That is so incredibly significant in this text that Jesus makes it a point to say, he calls all of his friends and his neighbors, his family together, and he says, let's have a party. That tells us just how significant this little lost sheep was to that shepherd. Verse nine says, and when the lady found the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, hey, I found my coin. Come, let's have a party. Let's have cake. Somebody bring ice cream. You got drinks. You bring cups. You know, that's awesome. They both celebrate with their friends and with their community. Then I love how Jesus gives the divine application, right? He tells the story, and then he goes, this is why this story is so important for you to understand. Verse 7 says, so just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Pretty significant, by the way. Jesus is kind of pulling a funny here, right? He does it often. Sometimes the Pharisees miss it. They think, yeah, well, we're probably one of the 99. So it's not a big deal that we're, you know, we don't need repentance. Basically, Jesus is saying, look, you all need to repent. 
And there's this great celebration that happens, verse 10, just so I tell you there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is how we know, by the way, people, that, that people matter to God. It's amazing to me that we're in a culture right now where I did a, a few Google searches this week, and you've seen it on TV, right? As a result of, of some of the unfortunate events that have happened over our country, we have this mantra, black lives matter. And as a response to that, we had what? Blue lives matter. It was the police officers, the friends and family and people that care about the police. You know what's really awesome? Is that I look at all of that and I say it is true. Black lives do matter. And it certainly is true that blue lives matter. In God's estimation of people that he created, all lives matter. That's the God that we serve. And this is how we know that people matter to God. Because not only does he search for them, but when they're found, there's a party. It's a pretty amazing thing to me that there'd be a party in heaven over one person who comes into a relationship with Jesus. Do you know there are almost 7 billion people on this planet right now? Does it, does it seem insignificant to anybody else that just one person out of 7 billion doesn't sound like that big a deal? Certainly doesn't sound like, hey, let's strike up the band in heaven because of one person. And yet Jesus makes it very clear. That's how I feel about people. When just one of them crosses the line of faith and comes into the relationship that I created them to have, I throw a big party in heaven. Now some of you, if you're honest, you say, so what? You say, how do you know that? Well, you're, you're looking at me and you're smiling, but I do life with many of you. And I know there are some of you that are going, well, well, well so what? Some of us, if we're really honest... We'd have to admit that people irritate us. I don't want you to raise your hand right now and embarrass yourself. But some of us, that's true, right? I've had people that have sat across the table from me, and we, we try to create a, an atmosphere of transparency here at Northwest and being honest, open, and vulnerable. And people will say to me, i got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm irritated by people. I don't really even want to be around a, a, a big group of people. If I'm honest, there are people, and I, I think that, that a lot of pastors would say this, there are people that irritate me. All right? You preach to them, you tell them what's right, and they go there. Right? Why? Because we're sheep. I say we, because remember, I'm one of you too. <laughs> That's what's sad, is when you talk about sheep, I'm not just talking about you, but I'm in the same pen. Right? I'm a sheep too. And so people can be frustrating to us and, and irritating to us, but I want you to get to the heart of the matter this morning, and that is this, that lost people matter to God. And because lost people matter to God, lost people should matter to us. Do you remember when you were lost? You see, that's part of the problem. There are a lot of us that are here today, and we have known Jesus as our Lord and Savior so long that we have forgotten what it looked like to be lost. That's true of so many of you this morning that are, that are listening to me, that are looking at my face right now. You've known Jesus for so long that you have convinced yourself that you're really not that bad. And so when you see people that have a lifestyle that you don't condone, that have political views that you don't have. In fact, some of you that have a color of skin that you don't prefer or a nationality that you don't prefer, you look down on them. If they commit a crime that, that you see as heinous and that our culture sees as heinous, you think to yourself, you wouldn't say it out loud, but you think to yourself, I'm really better than them. I've never been that bad. 
because you have forgotten what it really looks like to be lost. I came to know Jesus when I was nine. And I had committed sin, but not really, really bad stuff in my mind, right? I mean, I pulled my sister's hair, probably kicked them, did stuff, you know. I, I mean, I, I'm sure I was a brat. I mean, I'm 49, I'm still a brat to some extent. So, you know, I'm sure I did things like that. But I look back and I go, I really wasn't that bad. And so if I'm not careful, Jerry and I were talking about it this week, if we're not careful, guys like us, we look at it and we don't, we don't remember what it was like to be lost. On the other hand, there are some of us, there are some of you sitting here this morning, you remember what it was like to be lost, don't you? You say, how do you know that? Because I know some of your stories. And I love your stories. I was telling somebody John McNeese's story this week about how God radically transformed and changed his life. You remember, don't you, John? You remember what it's like to be lost. And when you remember what it was like to be wandering through life with no purpose, some of us remember what it was like to be walking through life having everything that the world said we should have and those things should make us happy, and yet somehow we were still feeling empty until we realized that we were created to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and we crossed that line of faith. And we placed our sin at the foot of the cross and we came into that relationship. We remember that really well. And here's the point. We were all at one point lost. Whether you want to admit it or not, you have been there and I've been there. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But God seeks us out those of us that are lost, and he tracks us down, and he puts us on his shoulders, and we believe in him, and we, we repent of our sin, and, and we place our sin under the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we come into that relationship, and then we live those words which John Newton wrote in the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, where he said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you, right? You, you're the wretch, no, no. Saved a wretch, John Newton said, like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but what? But now I see. That's what happens. And the truth of these stories in Luke 15 teaches us that we've never locked eyes with another human being who isn't valuable to God. And the question is, do people matter to you? Do lost people matter to you? The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin challenge the listeners to do three things. And I want you to remember these things. If you've got a pen and a piece of paper, write them down because you think you'll remember them, but you'll forget them. They're very simple. The first thing is that we have to live life with lost people. You've got to live life with lost people. You say, I don't know any lost people. In fact, there are some of you here this morning and you're quite proud of the fact that you really don't know any lost people. You don't hang out with tax collectors and sinners. Shame on you. You heard that, right? If you're here this morning and everybody in your circle of influence looks just like you and thinks just like you and talks just like you and says Christianese, churchy words like you that nobody really understands, that's shameful. The only thing that you and I can't do better in heaven is what? Influence lost people, right? Everything else we can do better in heaven. I guarantee you, as good as our worship is here on a Sunday morning, I guarantee you I can worship better if I'm sitting at the throne of Jesus. I just guarantee you, right? 
I can study, I can, I'll, I'll have full understanding then. I mean, my, my, my Bible study will be much more significant in heaven when I'm right there with the master teacher, right? The one thing that I can't do in heaven is care about lost people. It's too late. The clock's run out. I have to live life with lost people. You got to get to know some lost people. For some of us, the best thing that you could do is quit hanging out with all your church friends and find some people that don't look like you, that don't act just like you. And some of you right now, there's a sick feeling that's getting there in your stomach, right? And you're thinking about, uh, maybe he knows about my neighbor that has invited me over to their house and I can't go over to their house because I'm very much convinced that they're sacrificing goats in the backyard and they're doing all kinds of, of things like that. And if I, if I go over there, you know, I, 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 I think that guy drinks and he might have five beers and he might get drunk and then, then what would I do? And I'd have to go home and that'd be very embarrassing. And you're just going, oh, I can never do that. I can never hang out with people that don't look like me and think like me and act like me. Please, God, don't ask me to do that. That's where some of us are right now. Everybody that you hang out with is lily white and looks just like you. It's true, right? Some of you live in neighborhoods where there are people that don't look just like you, but they need Jesus. You got to start hanging out with them. You say, I can't even invite them over for a cookout. They eat different food and I don't know what they like and figure it out, right? Figure it out. Some of you are doing that and I'm so thankful for that. Figure it out. Get into their world. Do life with lost people. That's what Jesus modeled energetically. Most of his ministry that's recorded in the Gospels, he was hanging out with the riffraff. He was hanging out certainly with people that didn't look just like him. You gotta live life with lost people. I'm so thankful that right now, God has put some people in my life and it's just a group of people that, because of some things that I'm involved in, we're kind of doing life together. And these dudes, there's four of them, they don't look anything like me. They just don't. And they're going to get so scared one day when they recognize that I'm a pastor. I'm trying to keep it secret from them because I just don't want them to know, right? I, just want, them to, I want them to see me as one of the guys. And they are living lives so differently. They, they, some of them, they, they curse like drunken sailors. They're, and one day they're going to be really embarrassed. They've been hanging out with a pastor all this time. And they're going to go, oh my goodness, what joke have I told? What thing have I said? And that's okay, right? I, don't, I notice that I hang out with them and I don't go home and start using this profanity in my house, right? Trying, trying to do what Jesus modeled. Live life with lost people. Number two, get ready to get messy. You live life with lost people, people that know they're lost, your life is going to get messy. I've told you this many times here at Northwest. If you get involved with people that are far from God, it's going to get messy. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. It's probably going to cost you some money. There's going to be some things that you want to do that you can't do because you don't have the time or money. It's going to get messy. That's what happens. But here's what I know. If you will live life with lost people and be ready to get messy, there will come a day when, just like it did in Jesus' story, you're going to have a party. Some of you never go to any parties like this. You never go to a Levi party. You wouldn't know what a Levi party was other than you're supposed to come in your 501 blues that you wore in high school. You wouldn't know what a Levi party was. A Levi party was what we see in Luke chapter 5 
where Levi comes to Jesus and he invites all of his lost friends and he goes, woohoo, celebrate with me. My life was transformed. It was changed because I met Jesus. Some of you will never go to a party like that because you don't live life with lost people. You're not willing to get messy and you'll never, you'll never, ever, ever experience the joy of that kind of a party. I had a guy this week that I was sitting with at lunch and I was kind of preaching in my sermon, just kind of getting some feedback and kind of listening and watching what he said. And, you know, and he said, uh, all right, so if I said I wanted to do that, what would I do? I said, that's a great question. I think you ought to start by praying, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Let me care about lost people like you care about lost people. It's always really good for me when I go to Kenya and I'm seeing these little people little children that are in this village in the middle of nowheresville kenya and and they got just a little pair of shorts on snotty nose and they're running around and i look at them and i go they matter to god you say that little snotty nosed kid in the middle of nowhere yep he matters to god he's the one sheep out of a hundred he matters to God. You pray and ask God that he would break your heart for what breaks his. As I close, I want to read something to you by Bill Hybels wrote. By the way, he wrote a book called uh, Just Walk Across the Room. I've talked to some of you that really want to get more involved sharing your faith and getting involved with lost people and because you realize people matter to God. And This is a great way to start, by the way, by reading this book, Just Walk Across the Room. You can find it on Amazon or other places. I want to read you what he wrote about this particular text, Luke chapter 15, and then I will close in prayer. He said, this has been a creedal text for me. I remember after studying it the first time, writing to myself, Bill, you've never looked into the eyes of someone who does not matter to God. Every time you make eye contact with a cab driver, a waiter, a waitress, a bellhop, a doorman, a millionaire, jet setter, a Gen Xer, a grandparent in a rest home, a minority person, a gay or lesbian, an illegal immigrant, a politician who votes the opposite way you vote, every single person you lock eyes with matters to God. They are one prayer away from receiving Jesus Christ's salvation as you have. They are people for whom Christ died. They deserve my respect. They deserve my honor. They deserve my love. In the final hours of Jesus' life, he was hanging on a cross between two thieves. One of the thieves realized that Jesus was ready to breathe his last breath, so he reviewed his life. And he was just sick about how he had lived his life. But it was too late. What was he going to do now? He can't clean up his act. He can't decide to fly straight. He can't join a church. He can't offer God anything but a heart full of remorse. All of a sudden, a, a fantastic thought sweeps into his mind just for a fleeting moment, and he wonders to himself, what if the love of God was so high, so deep, and so wide, and so all-encompassing that he could wrap his arms around a foul up like me? What if someone like me, after all that I've done, still mattered to God? So he turns to Jesus with just that mustard seed-sized faith, and he says, any shot you'd remember someone like me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Hybels goes on to say, he said, let me paraphrase this. Jesus is saying, in spite of all you've done, you still matter to me. You've mattered to me since the day you were born. You mattered to me when you were headed down the wrong way. You mattered to me when you did your first bank heist, when you were arrested the first time, when you were locked up the first time, and the day you were condemned to die. There was never a moment when you stopped mattering to me. On the basis of your humility and your faith, I can say to you, welcome home. 
(laughs) He ends this section by writing this. I love this. This picture of love should melt you all the way to your core. It's love of another kind. A love like that, when it takes root in your heart, should change the way you look at people. Every time you look at someone else, it should motivate me and you to be the first person to celebrate diversity, the first person to reach out our hand to those who we would once have diminished, the first person to always say to anybody you know, you matter to God. It's really incredible to me that Jesus tells these two stories and his whole big idea is looking at these Pharisees, looking at these religious people and saying, I want to remind you that these people that you despise, they matter to me. And that is Christians that are here. That's why we're here. That's why Northwest Community Church exists. To see people who are far from God come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and to see their life transformed and their eternal destination changed. And that will only happen if we buy in to what Jesus was talking about in these two stories, that people matter to God. And if people matter to God, they should matter to us. And the question is, do they? If they don't, You should pray, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Let people matter to me like they matter to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for these simple stories. So simple yet so profound. And they teach us truths that we know are right and yet for so many of us we don't live. Help us to live this week, live life with lost people. Help us to be salt and light in this community. Help us to make a difference. Help people to notice the difference that Jesus has made in our life. If it's nothing more than this week, that that we make sure that they know that they matter to us and they matter to us because they matter to you. God, I pray that you would open up opportunities for conversation even this week and we'll see people make one step closer toward a relationship with Jesus Christ this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name.